iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Wine Times, the podcast about all things grape related. Brought to you in association with the Sunday Times Wine Club with me, Makita Oliver. And me, Will Lyons, the Sunday Times Wine Columnist and Vice President of the Sunday Times Wine Club. Yes, you are. And this show, as you might have guessed, is all about wine. Red, white, rosé, sparkling. Italian, French, Australian, South African and all the rest. This series, we're going to be tasting our way through those tannins. And we won't be doing it alone, Will, will we? Nope. Every episode, we'll be joined by a well-known guest for some good wine, good times and lively conversation. And remember, the wines featured in this episode and all others are available through the Sunday Times Wine Club. If you haven't signed up yet, there'll be a link in the episode description for you. So whether you're an expert with a broad palate or you just tend to go with the house stuff. In this show, you're sure to find something to suit your taste. Joining us today in Edinburgh's beautiful Prestonfield is the multi-award winning crime writer, Ian Rankin. You will of course recognise his most famous character, the maverick detective Inspector Rebus. And Ian has been entertaining us and keeping us gripped for more than 30 years with stories of Edinburgh's grim underbelly. He's a lover of wine and today we've come all the way to Edinburgh to indulge him and his passion. Ian Rankin, welcome to Wine Times. No, I, I, I love coming to Prestonfield House Hotel. It's owned by the wonderful James Thompson, who also owns The Witchery, which is another fantastic location in Edinburgh. And it's an old country house. And it was the first place in Scotland to grow rhubarb. Oh, is that why it really? says rhubarb oh, that's, everywhere? That's why the restaurant is called rhubarb. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, we have a thing um, I haven't told you about. I have my honeymoon night here. Oh. So the night I was married. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was 2003. Wow. And I used to live very locally, just um, on Downkeith Road. So um, so this place is actually quite special to you. It's like stepping back in time. Yeah. No one can see where we are, but we're in a beautiful room. It's sort of red and pink and there's a massive Christmas tree. And how old is Preston Fieldhouse, does anyone know? Yeah, it's probably 17th yeah, century, late say. 17th, early 18th century. Mm. I mean, it's very old. Um, and the, 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 the red room that we're sitting in, this is leather. It is, it's isn't it's, it? re- it's leather and it's very very well done. The kind of, all the wall coverings are leather, and we've got a nice crackling wood fire yeah. as well. So it's perfect. It's very Christmassy. It's I, this, very is, Christmassy. this is probably going out in April. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we, we should tell a gay story or something. When is this going out? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's the most beautiful place we've ever done it, and it's. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today, and I hope that you like wine because that's what this is all about, mm. Ian. How? What's your relationship like with wine? Have you been drinking it a long time? You know, when I was growing up, there was no wine in the house. My parents weren't wine drinkers. Got to university, and it was the, the screw top Lambrusco. 
uh, or the or the or the blue nun or whatever. It was the kind of cheapest thing in the shop to take to parties. But then my girlfriend, who worked in a bookshop in Edinburgh, um, decided one summer she was going to go off and work in a vineyard in France that was almost run like a commune. It was called Chateau Brandeau, and it was outside um, Castillon La Bataille. And I went with her, and we ended up spending six months on this vineyard, doing all the jobs. Um, like what kind of jobs? Well, everything. I mean, from kind of pruning, pruning the leaves to make sure that the sun could get to the grapes, to sort of just taking a tractor down between the rows, between the vines, to sort of churn up the soil, to eventually picking the grapes and treading the grapes. Wow, yeah. you did the treading. We did a little bit of treading. Mostly it went to the Cave Cooperatif. So mostly it got yes. mixed in with everybody else's and it became Cote de Castillon. Mm. But some of it was kept back for private bottling by the, the owners of the vineyard who were um, academics, they had been academics, and then they'd given that up and decided to crazily start a vineyard instead, uh, which was mostly, there was hardly anybody on it that, that was a full-time viniculteur. It was right. all just people passing through. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, we, we, we stuck around and we did everything. And so they tr we trod the grapes and uh, I think I've still got one bottle of that left somewhere, but whether it's drinkable or not, I couldn't tell you. But Ian, it, well, sorry, wasn't it a very famous year as well? It was 82. And 82. as you know, Will, 82 for Bordeaux was an extraordinary yeah, year. Yeah, it was a game changer. Um, it's, it's regarded as one of the greatest post-war vintages, mm. which means the growing season was just... I think if you go to um, Bordeaux University, they give you five elements for the, what, what makes a great vintage, a great growing season. And all the stars aligned in 82, delivering a very ripe and accessible style of wine, which became very popular in North America. What kind of things had uh, aligned to make it such a beautiful year? Was it just like the perfect weather? Yeah, so you need, put, well, obviously you need good weather, but I think the most important thing is good weather at the end of the growing season. You have talked about this yeah. often, yes. What you want is that wonderful Indian summer. So, you know, August, September, you have to have um, cool nights, hot days, just enough rainfall as well. Mm. Um, I remember it, I remember it well. Yeah. Uh, I, remember <laughs> yeah. the, I remember the sunburn. Um, being, a, being a pale Scot, uh, I was getting, I got the sunburn something awful. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a lovely long growing season. And did you find it quite exciting if you ever spotted it? Oh, totally. And yeah. I, oh, if I saw it in a restaurant menu, I'd have to buy it. I tried those. <laughs> I know. That was my grapes. Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I could almost have said that. Uh, but that, so that got me interested, Mikita, but it got me interested predominantly in Bordeaux reds. Yes. yes. And that's yeah. mostly what I drink. Well, where are we starting? Well, you? we're not starting in Bordeaux. And I thought this would be, we do have a Bordeaux for Ian. But I thought I I'd, try say, and, <laughs> I'd try and surprise you. And of course, since... Um, your tremendous success with the, uh, with the Rebus books and after you've left university. Um, over the border in England, we've had this fantastic growth in English wine. So I thought we would start with an English wine. Mm -hmm. And today we're starting in Oxfordshire and it's very much uh, in-house. It's, it's, it's a club favourite. It's actually made by Barbara Lathwaite, so Tony Lathwaite's um, uh, wife. Well, you just talked, well, you began to tell me the other day about the story of Barbara and I was completely transfixed yeah. by this lady. And now, and now she's doing this? Yeah, so this is a small vineyard just outside of Henley in Oxfordshire. I think she planted it in 2009. And I have to say, I wanted to see what you thought of this because I think this is, this just shows you the, how English sparkling wine is really Does come it on. so well, doesn't it? I know, I know. <laughs> I've learned that trick as well. <laughs> the idea is you, you hold the cork yeah. And you twist the bottle. Twist the bottle very slowly. Oh, yeah. wow. A lot of colour in that. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the mousse. So the can mousse, you... obviously you can't see this if you're listening. 
you've got this vivid white mousse, mm. which is... I'll give that this one to the Kita. I always pour out enormous. Yeah, I know you don't, do. Not so much for me, thanks very much. <laughs> this is just a starter. I mean, that is just that sort of goldeny orange. And as I've said before, I think we're in the sort of third phase of English sparkling wine. Whereas the first so phase... So it's, it's not a rosé? I mean, yeah. this is pink. It is. It's a brute rosé. It's okay. a rosé, okay. Yeah. 2017. And the, the, the first phase was sort of post-war, where you had a few hobby farmers. There was Hambledon down Hampshire. Um, and they, they were making okay wine. I think there was Bernard Theobald on the, temps of the, on, on the banks of the Thames. Then the late 90s come along, and you get the emergence of a few really world-class sparkling wines. And now we're sort of 2021, aren't we? Oh, my God, it's and I think that's a. Mm. I, think, I think England has actually proven itself to be a destination for world-class and, and, and is this a, a, an offshoot of global warming? I think this. Or, really is it, or is it the fact that now we can produce grapes where we couldn't before because of changes in technology? Yeah, I think that, I think that's probably more important. So I think the climate does have a ha, has made a difference. I think the key thing is is that we made the decision to plant Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, which are the three great varieties of Champagne. And just to have a go at making a champagne-style wine, which is a, a secondary fermentation in the bottle, and improvements in knowledge and viticulture and expertise. I mean, England now has its own um, viticultural university called Plumpton, so you've got lots of graduates coming through. And it's just that application, isn't it? It's good husbandry in the vineyard. That's what Barbara does. It's just looking after the vines. It's like a farm, you know. If you've, yeah. I, I think I, I went out to see the port producers, and it was um, Paul Simington that said to me, a lot of winemaking is just very small decisions, having to make correct decisions, but also good husbandry, you know. Is it clean? Mm. Are you pruning correctly? It's something we, we sometimes, you know, it's a festive drink mm. yeah. if you're having pink champagne. It does feel a bit Christmassy. It does yeah, kind of tickle yeah. you down the throat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, it's, it's something you can drink while you're preparing the Christmas dinner. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, how does it come into your writing process? Do you enjoy it at the end of finishing a book, say, or uh, oh. at the end of a writing day? Yeah, no, at the end of the writing day, um, I've got to say during lockdown, I was drinking quite a lot of wine. Mm. Um, I, I sort of collected wine for a long time. You know, I'd have sort of special bottles. I'd, when we lived in London, when we first got married, I started buying wine that you know and nice wine if I could afford it that went with us to France when we moved to France and you were allowed you were, you were allowed under French law to take your cellar with you free what? of charge no 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 oh, no um, they were very keen on you to take your cellar with you so it went with me to France and then when we moved back some of it came back to Edinburgh again during lockdown I thought Ian why you're saving it for a special day this is the special day so I started to drink some of those bottles I actually sent um, well, a few photographs of some of the bottles yeah. that I was drinking. Could you? And the thing is, they weren't great vintages because I couldn't afford to buy great vintages, but they were nice vineyards. They were good vineyards, mm. so they were pretty reliable. Also, what age were you, were you when you decided to start collecting wine? Because it seems like... It would have been mid-20s. Right, not yeah, many people yeah, in their mid-20s yeah. think about wine in that way. No, no, but I, I was one of these people who would go into wine shops, famous wine shops in London, and just take away their price lists so that I could salivate over yeah, yeah. The, the listings. Easy. Without being able to afford to buy any of the wines, I would just actually read the listings. The yeah. A man after my own heart. Wow. I have Absolutely. to buy the bed, actually. No! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I love flicking through but I think Berry Brothers and Rudd had a lovely yeah. little book. There was a little book they would give you yeah. full of all these wines, and I would just sit and read it like you were reading literature or something. <laughs> And I would sit and wait, hey, do you know how much it is for a bottle of Chateau Margaux? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And beautifully produced and beautiful prose, actually. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. The way they talk, what, the way well, it's because discussed. Well, because yeah. the, the wine trade does attract intellectuals. Who, mm. who, who it's a vocation almost, and yeah, and, um, and 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 they love to communicate and write about wine. And but to answer your question, I don't drink while I'm writing. I used to, when I was young, I had this naive idea that if you if you were a writer, you should be a drunk, mm. um, the kind of Hemingway school. But yeah. it just doesn't work. It never worked for me anyway. So I'll, I'll drink with dinner at the end of the working day yeah. because I'm now at an age where I can't go back. When I was young, I would go back after dinner and keep writing. Yeah. But a couple of hours a day now and I'm completely gone. Do you find with a hangover as well, that <laughs> slows you down? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but then I, I'm, I'm in the fortunate position of taking a day off if yeah. I have a hangover. I don't I, um, need to write. You can go, I'm just not going to write today. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it seems ludicrous for a, a, a wine writer to admit this, but I, I, as I, yeah, I think you need... Well, Ed Gamble was saying to us, so I can't... Um, drink and public speak. I just always have to spit. Mm. And Ed Gamble was the same. If something happens with my brain, it just slows it down and I can't think on my feet. And it's the same with writing. Although I have written a few with a few glasses of wine. No, but I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely... Musician friends of mine can have a drink and go on stage. But I feel like when you have to sort of, I don't know, lock, uh, unlock something that's like in control. You have to be in control if you're yeah. speaking or hosting something. Yeah. I think you can have more abandon as a musician and be a bit drunk, but I don't think well, we can. Well, also, it can, you know, it loosens you up a little bit sometimes. Yeah. If you're, yeah. Maybe you're shy, you're nervous about going on stage or you're shy. Well, a couple of drinks just give you that Dutch courage, as we say, yeah. and you yeah. will go on stage and do it. It's just, it's that fine balance between enough to make you want to go on stage too much and you can't actually do anything once you get on stage. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so you've got to be very careful of that, yeah. very much for listening to this episode of Wine Times in association with the Sunday Times Wine Club. Remember the wines featured in this episode and all others are available through the Sunday Times Wine Club. If you haven't signed up yet, there'll be a link in the episode description for you. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, where are we going next? Well, we are in association with the Sunday Time Wine Club. And what the club has always been good at over its history is finding new regions. And there was one wine which I thought would be fun to serve today, which I came across when I was tasting with them a couple of years ago. Um, you'll never guess where it's from. It's from Moldova. Oh, okay. Yeah. A friend of mine's just been there. She's literally just come back. She was working in Moldova. So, 
Moldova, I think Tony Lathwaite says, um, and he's right, you know, you, you, you'd you be forgiven if you didn't know where it was, let alone that it... But, um, I was just going to say, and where is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine. Okay. So we're around Black Sea yeah. area. So it's actually, if you look at it on a map, it's shaped like a bunch of grapes. No. And oh. always had, apparently, because I haven't been, always had good agricultural uh, produce. Um, I think the viticulture goes back to the 15th century. Certainly the Tsars loved it. And the higher echelon generals of the Communist Party, I believe, mm -hmm. would always ask for Moldovan wine. Moldovan wine. Moldovan. Um, it's an interesting part of the world, by the Black Sea. Yeah. So this is Chateau Vartely, V-A-R-T-E-L-Y. And um, if you have been, we're in the, I think it's pronounced Bougiac region. My pronunciation's been awful on this, but, <laughs> but we're, we're an hour north of the capital. Is it Chisnau? Mm -hmm. Near the medieval city of Orr. So, okay. I mean, wow. when lockdown's over, proper, it'd be a wonderful trip. And I think you might be going. Over well, I've got a, we've got a cruise, hopefully, organised for May of, uh, April of the Black Sea. Wow. Starting and finishing at Istanbul and going around the whole, and all those countries that border it. So, yeah. Is it a part of the world you visited before? Never. Mm. I mean, I've been to Istanbul. Um, British Council took me there to give some talks a long time ago. But no, nowhere else. No. But, you know, let's fingers crossed that we actually get to go. Yes, yeah. yes, quite. It's got a real scent, doesn't it? If, if, if we're at the beginning of the series, we were, we're doing a lot of tasting. Mm. But there's fruit on this, and it's lychee, isn't it? Do you yeah. know that sort of lychee yeah. character? That was not what I was um, expecting, actually. But I'm waiting for Will to tell me what it tastes like, because yeah. because I don't, I, my vocabulary is terrible. And as soon as, soon as oh, well. he says, oh, you can taste toasted nutmeg, I go, oh, yeah, yeah you yeah, can. Yeah, once, okay, once so, he guides you, you can yeah. go with him. But yeah, he does yeah, have yeah. to start. I agree. Mm. Our first ones, he used to give me little notes, but he doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the notes have gone. I think, though, that this is going to well, probably taste Ian as... Ian and I have done some blind tasting together. If we were blind tasting that... Have you? Wait, yeah, I'm yeah. hilariously bad. Hilariously bad. He put me on a quiz team once. He's a, he's a brutal, sadistic young man. <laughs> and he put me on his quiz team of journalists, wine journalists <laughs> up against other people, knowing that I knew nothing about anything apart from Bordeaux. Be the trade. And I, just, I think I got everything wrong. And oh, the trade no. take it so seriously. That was the 25th anniversary of the Edinburgh East St Andrews blind wine tasting match, which yeah. Um, yeah. I said. But also, the, the, where I used to live, the um, street I lived in in Edinburgh for years, the, the gentleman had a wine group. And they still do. I'm, I'm, I'm still allowed to go along, although I no longer live in the street. And we, it's been going for years. And after years, we've no further forward in guessing what these wines are. <laughs> somebody, somebody hosts it. A different it's like person the blind leading it. the blind. It's a blind leading. Somebody <laughs> yeah. hosts it. And you, and you cover up the bottles so people can't see what they're drinking. They've got to give out which country they think it's from, what grape variety, how much it would cost, etc. And the only thing we ever have any success in is how much would it cost. Yeah. Some yeah, of us are pretty good at that. Yeah. But countries, and it's usually a theme, um, a kind of secret theme. It's quite clever. But everyone has a good time. Great time, and then at the end we say, more research needed. <laughs> so, yeah, go and give us a taste so of notes what, for what, this. What, 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 what are you getting? This, if we were blind tasting, and yes. that, that was the 20th anniversary, wasn't it? Edinburgh v St Andrews. Um, it reminds me of a Gewürztraminer or a Viognier, Condria. It has that perfume, pungent, lychee character. So as I said, lychee, mango, I have to say, I've never, you've never given me such a fruity wine. It's <laughs> really <laughs> tropical almost. But I suppose I don't think we've ever had a but wine from this part of the world. What's different from that to Gewürztraminer? It doesn't have that waxy oiliness on the texture. It's actually crisp. Mm -hmm. It's crisp and dry. Well, where are we going on our final well, journey? <clears throat> we couldn't invite Scotland's greatest writer mm. and not serve a Bordeaux. 
Absolutely. But the thing is with this wine is there is a, a lovely synergy between Ian treading the grapes in 1982 <laughs> and 10 years previously when the Sunday Times Wine Club was in its genesis. And it's quite an interesting story that I thought I might share today. Yes, please. In that uh, a very young uh, Durham University graduate called Tony Lathwaite was working in Windsor with a very small import business where he would go down in his van and pick up um, red wines from um, around Bordeaux and then sell them to clients in England. Um, what happened was, during that time, so we're, we're, the, the year is 1972, the Sunday Times ran its insight team by, um, I think it was Nicholas Tomlin, ran an expose on English wine. Now in those days, before we entered what was then, not the EU, was the common market, the law was, if you were a wine merchant in England, uh, you could sell the wine as long as you believed what was in the bottle what, what, what was actually that wine. So I think the, the rumour was that most of the Chateau Neuf de Pat that year was bottled in Norwich. No way. And the Sunday Times expose <laughs> was that uh, unscrupulous wine merchants were buying wine from North Africa, where it was lovely and warm and had that rich, ripe style, bringing it back to England and believing it was something else, putting something else on the bottle. Now, Tony Lathwaite saw this and he thought, good on the Sunday Times for exposing this. So he wrote them a letter to the great Sir Harry Evans. And he said, um, I'm a little, uh, you know, I've got this small business under the, under the arches in Windsor. Um, please continue doing these exposés because what we're doing is we're buying um, wine direct from the vineyard, from chateaus that do actually exist. And Harry Evans published the letter in the Sunday Times. Now, can you imagine that? It's 72, so got to go back in time before the internet. That's like having the first page of Google, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, I think, I think the story is that Tony was driving down from Durham, picks up a paper at, at a motorway service station, goes into the loo, looks at the letters page, sees his letter and punches the air because the advertising was, you know, fantastic. Orders came in. They did a few offers for the Sunday Times. And then it was mooted that they should do a club together. And Harry Evans thought it was a great idea. And they sent down, uh, they, they sent down a journalist to check out Tony and Barbara. And to their credit, because they were only in their sort of late 20s, they set up this club. And the, the orders, must, it must have been a ferociously busy time because the club grew. Well, the early like 70s, how easy was it to get fine French wine in, in England? Well, yeah. So, no, it was easy to get fine, um, um, you know, the, England has always drank the greatest wines mm. of the world, but, but to get good, consistent, drinkable wines direct from the vineyard, yeah. not many people direct from the uh, vineyard. were doing that. So in 1973, the club was founded and they needed a president. Who better than Hugh Johnson, who just authored The World Atlas of Wine? And the rest is history. It just grew from it. It's now, I think, the largest wine club in the world. Wow. And they had great fun. They did cruises. They did trips to France. Um, there was one memorable trip they did to Bergerac. And um, he, Barbara and Tony were already there waiting for the aeroplane to arrive. Hugh Johnson had flown with all the Sunday Times uh, wine club members from England. And they were circling this small airstrip. And Teddy was thinking, why aren't they landing? Anyway, eventually they landed and everyone got off very, very happy. So he took Hugh aside. He goes, why on earth 
you know, what were you doing up there? He goes, oh, well, we, we were just uh, finishing off all the wine. <laughs> nice. um, so our final wine nice. is Le Clarier. And this is where Tony bought this in 1980 off of his mentor, Monsieur Casa. And it's a 2018, so it's Castillon. Mm -hmm. So quite near where you were, Ian. Castillon, yeah. So we're quite near the very famous Saint-Emilion, but just outside. And there is some good terroir in Castillon, actually. Mm. Yeah. It's a little bit of limestone. But it's there. interesting because, you know, where we were, I didn't, I didn't know France at all when we went there in 82 to, to stay on this vineyard. I didn't certainly know that part of the world around Castillon. And we would take a bicycle and cycle to Saint-Emilion. And of course, the wines there were spectacular and expensive, but everything around Castillon was unknown. Yeah. The, the big one around our <clears> way was Chateau de Clotte. And that was about the only one anybody had ever heard of. Mostly it all went to the cooperative and it was just all put together in bottles, um, as all being Cote de Castillon wine. Um, and it's come on now. The, 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 the vineyards yeah. are, get, are much better known than they were, but it was like an invisible part of France's wine heritage. Mm. Um, but Castillon itself is a lovely town, if anybody. Yeah, uh, Castillon La Bataille. La Bataille. And in fact, in 198, they, every year they do this big reenactment of a battle, the Battle of Castillon. Yeah. And all the locals get involved and people pay money to go and watch it. And we got involved, we got roped in, and I was a peasant who had to sort of walk around. <laughs> and it's like, it was at night and there's, there's floodlights on you and there's people on horses and there's people with wagons. And so sort of like street theatre? Kind of, but in a yeah. big field. It was in a big field and, wow. and people would actually pay to come along and watch this reenactment of the, the events leading up to the Battle of Castile. I had no idea what I was doing. So do, does the smell of this wine, the colour of it, any of it, does it kind of take you straight it's, back Yeah, to of France? course. I mean, it's so dark. It's mm. just, just, it's, you know, it's the darkest, darkest red. It is, it's, it's um, black. Um, <laughs> just as this opens up, let's talk about the Battle of Castillo, actually. Just yes, to give you I'd the, like the to. Background know. to that. I'd love to. And that's all about Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152, marries Henry the Plantagenet. So for 300 years, the whole of southwest France was under the control of the English crown. And in 1453, they quite rightly, the French royal family, decided to kick out the English um, at this famous battle. Interestingly, they had to hire a mercenary army because the border lay were very happy with the arrangement, mm -hmm. as it was, because they were making lots of money, and it was a light touch, you know, the English were, were governing with a light touch. So, perversely, a lot of Scots and Flemish fought on the side of the French. And it was John Talbot, the Earl of um, Shrewsbury, who came down to the Battle of Castillon, and apparently he was in his 70s, and anyway, he was slayed quite quickly. Mm. It was a complete rout, and the English were... Um, uh, yes, it was very popular with the French when I was there. <laughs> um, I mean, also, because we're in Edinburgh, we should say something about the fact that Edinburgh yes. has very close connections with Bordeaux um, wine. Yeah, and absolutely. when England, during the kind of times when England was actually fighting the French and therefore were not going to buy French wine, the Scots very happily kept buying Bordeaux wine, and it would be brought by ship to Leith, the port just outside Edinburgh, would be put into um, the back of a wagon, horse and cart, and then taken up the hill from Leith to the centre of Edinburgh, and people would come out with jugs and cups and all sorts and just yeah. get, get some wine yeah. from the car, direct was, from the car. It was a hogshead of wine. And we know this because there's a great book written by Billy Kay. Um, Knee Deep in Claret. Knee Deep in Claret. Oh, yes. And he, and he cites Lord Coburn writing in the 18th century. He talks about exactly that. Because the, 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 the sort of three, if you think about Bordeaux, it's on the Atlantic. And the three most important ports of the UK were Edinburgh, well, mm. um, Leith, Bristol, 
and London. And that's where you would sail because there was no aeroplanes or railroads or, or roads even. And that's where the other one, you, you, you sort of go up to the Flemish yeah, some, some of the negotiants in Bordeaux still have Scots surnames, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Scots. They're um, not controlled by Scots anymore, yeah, but they were, they were kind yeah. of part of the... Scots were a big part of the Bordeaux wine trade. And certainly uh, after the Battle of Castillon uh, in 1453, oh, the Scots were given special privileges. Um, yeah, yes. there's always been. I mean, well, if you ever go to Bordeaux, just put your saucer on, on the back of the car. And you get a very warm welcome. No. Really? Well, you say that. <laughs> I, when we when we moved to France, I was I was armed with this information that the Scots were well thought of. And yeah, would, love everywhere us. we went, I'd say "Je suis écossais, pas anglais, je suis écossais, l'ancien alliance, the old alliance." And they go, "What? What are you talking about?" They'd yeah. never never heard of it. Never heard so of the it. Scots feel very passionately <laughs> about their connection to the French. The French don't th think of us it's, at all. French feels slightly differently. Yeah, totally. Yeah. How French? I ha we have to talk to Ian about his writing. Yeah, of we course. Sorry, we've been about 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 about. Like, We have to talk about it. Um, uh, uh, on the eve of um, releasing your 23rd Rebus book, please tell me, Ian Rankin, do you still enjoy writing? Oh, uh, do I lie or do I tell the truth? Well, um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't enjoy it as much as I used to when I was young. Um, and it was a game that I was playing. It was a hobby. It went from being a hobby, something I did when I was a kid, something I did when I was a student, to a paid hobby when I was getting published and actually making a little bit of money, to becoming my profession. Um, and suddenly there's a lot of um, pressure that didn't used to be there to produce a book um, and for that book to sell well so your publisher is in profit for that year. Mm. And there's lots of fans out there who want another book from you. You know, literally the minute your book is published, somebody has read it yeah. and they're saying, when's the next one? And you're going, well, you know, it takes me quite a long time to write these books. Um, but people can read them in a day or two. So I, when it's going well, I really enjoy it. During lockdown, I had some fun because I didn't need to tour. I didn't need to do interviews. There was none of that. There was no bookshop events. And I wrote more than I'd written in a long time. And I took on a lot of different projects. I mean, I finished a book that had been started by a Scottish novelist called William McIlvanny, who had died and left these notes incomplete and his widow asked me to see if I could complete the book. Wow, what a project. That was an extraordinary thing to do, um, to try and mimic his style so it was his book, not really mine. Then uh, Channel 4 came to me and said, oh, we are doing a thing called Murder Island, a TV series. Would you like to script it? It's going to be a game show. Members of the public will go to a Scottish island. A murder has been committed and they've got to try and solve the murder. And, you know, there's been little plays and things that I've done as well. And now I'm just girding my loins to start writing a new book. So mm -hmm. I've got about six months to produce a new book. So the pressure is still on. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and my wife shakes her head because she's always very keen for me to take the foot off the pedal, as it were, and just relax a little bit. And I can't. You know, I can't. I mean, I just, uh, there's something about writing. It's how I make sense of the world, mm. I think. It's how I communicate with the world and how I make sense of the world. So I'd be lost without it. I would be lost without it. Do you ever think about the sort of extraordinary success that you have? Because if you, if you, if it's written, like on paper, it is quite extraordinary to sort of. Yeah, but it came really successful. slow. I mean, you know, people think you were six. You've been always been successful. I mean, I really wasn't. My first book sold a couple of hundred copies. The first Rebus book disappeared without anybody really noticing it. It took it took eight or ten Rebus novels for people to start wow. paying attention. Yeah. Um, and I was always on the verge of being dropped by various publishers because I wasn't selling enough. Um, but when there was a it built up momentum, 
librarians would say, try this guy. Bookshop booksellers would say, you should try this guy. People who read crime fiction would tell other readers, have you read Ian Rank and he's really good? And it did eventually come good, um, sales-wise. It's a lovely way to grow. It, yeah. oh, if I'd had success early on, I'd be a nightmare. <laughs> you know, it would have been gold-plated pool, uh, pool tables. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Elton Yeah, and yeah. a helicopter and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was in my... I guess I was in my late 40s before I, had, I was yeah. financially successful. What's the book you're most proud of? You're supposed to say the next one, or the one that's available <laughs> now in hardcover. Uh, yeah, I mean, Black and Blue was the, yeah. was the breakout book for me. That was the one that won, it won a big prize, and uh, people started to pay attention to me a little bit more. Um, and it was quite successful in America. So, and it was the first book where I really felt, yeah, Ian, you have served your apprenticeship. You do know what you're doing now. Right, yeah, you move into that other part where you have to go, okay, I'm a writer, yeah. I it know was, how to it do it. It was a big book, it was a complex book, it was a long book. Um, and so that was the first really big book for me. So I'm, I think I'm happiest with that one. Yeah. Do you think you'll write forever? Ask, ask my wife. She's very keen for me not to write forever so we can have some proper holidays and take a year off and just go go around the world and stuff like that. Um, but you know what? I mean, I've always done it. Mm. Even when I was a wee kid, I'd get bits of paper and just do try and do strip cartoons and speech right. bubbles and little stick people. Um, then I went from that to writing song lyrics for bands that didn't exist because uh, <laughs> I, I had no musical ability whatsoever. So I just, I'd made up a band in my head called the Amoebas and I used to write their right, lyrics. Right, so narrative and characters have just yeah. always been... And creating a world, creating yeah. an alternate universe where you get to play God. So I would take my band on tour, I would plan their tours and they would appear on Parkinson chat show and I would script the Parkinson show and stuff. Um, and then that became poetry and the poetry started to tell stories so it became short stories and the short stories got longer and longer. Right. So it's been a quite an organic process. Did you feel that people are reading as much as they were? Yeah, I mean, people are reading more than ever. I mean, during yeah. lockdown, book sales went through the roof. Wasn't that yeah. incredible? It was incredible. Mm. But at the same time, a lot of bookshops were closed. Um, so I'm afraid the, the, the evil uh, online retailers got a lot of the sales. Um, but, uh, yeah, people want narrative. Yeah, I mean, yeah. human beings, by their very nature, A, want narrative, they want stories, but B, they want... If you give them a, a, a question, they need to know the answer to that question. And what crime fiction does is give you a question from the word go. Yeah. Usually it starts with a murder. So from the word go, page one, you go, okay, I need to know who did this and why they did it. So you've got them, you've grabbed them, and you're going to have them for the rest of the book. And, you know, it's a way of switching off from COVID, isn't it? Just yeah. disappearing to a good no, book. No, I totally agree. You know? And I think, I think possibly the crime novel, because a lot of crime novels were heading towards... You know, were quite hard-boiled, lots of serial killers for a while. That was the thing with serial killers, your Hannibal Lecter mm. lookalikes. People now want to disappear into something a bit more gentle. Mm. I think the, the old-fashioned, traditional English who done it is back. I got into R.K. Narayan recently, well, over lockdown, because that's very gentle. Um, like you might want a gentle wine or, or yeah, 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 Sometimes yeah, you yeah. just need a yeah. hug yeah. <laughs> from I your know. wine or your literature. I know, you want a wine that's just a big hug in a glass. <laughs> <laughs> it so is, though. Ian, favourite? Shall I even bother asking? Don't even bother asking. <laughs> no. just, just, I mean, it's got the word Castillon on the label. Yeah. I'm going to love it to bits. Yeah. Because it takes me back to when I was 22 years old, not married. My girlfriend at the time is my wife. I mean, oh, we, is it the same yeah, lady? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've been married since 1986. But all the adventures I've had in my life, I've had because of her. This brings back all the happy memories of that summer. That's how we end this. Beautiful. Ian, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
that's it from us today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Wine Times in association with the Sunday Times Wine Club, produced by Ben Mitchell. You can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. Just do this via your normal podcast provider. We'll be back next week with more delicious wines and another great guest. And remember that all of the wines we tasted today are available from the Sunday Times Wine Club website. Goodbye. Bye. I always used to get, I, I, people used to, to, to raise an eyebrow because when I was, I was asked who are my favourite authors, amongst them I would always mention Jillie Cooper. Yeah. Do you read Jillie? Yes. Yeah. Well, what I love about it, she, she does what we've just been talking about. She creates this amazing world that you want to be part of. You want to live in that world. Yeah. I just want to be there and be one of these guys in jodhpurs. Uh, going around having sex on the tennis court. <laughs> yes, that's great. You know, and... What uh, weekend. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.